Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today, Carl Graham looks at the declining health and rising mortality of what is known in shorthand as the white working class. And at the bottom of the hour, Kristen Godsey makes a return appearance to talk about the noxious uses of anti-communism. Before that, a few words in politics today. I see a lot of people refusing to celebrate Tuesday's primary victories by a number of candidates endorsed by the rapidly growing Democratic Socialists of America because they ran as Democrats and the Democrats are a snare and a delusion. Yes, they are, no doubt about it. But Bernie Sanders did more to open up U.S. politics than anything in a long, long time, and that wouldn't have happened had he not run as a Democrat, even though he's not one himself, formally speaking. When it was all over, he had to endorse Hillary Clinton, which is a reminder of the snare and delusion part. But on the other hand, if he'd run as a Green or some other off-brand, he probably would have gone nowhere. When you ask the critics what their strategy is, it's to organize a radical, system-challenging party outside the Democrats. But whether we're talking about Trotsky's grouplets or the Green Party, people have been trying this for decades, and what do they have to show for it? The two-party system is a near-official status in the U.S., and it's a very tough nut to crack. So I'd say, why not give this strategy a try? There really are some promising candidates running, and maybe they can open things up some. The institutional power of the Dems to stifle anything left of center is real, but it's not like the third party or revolutionary sex strategy has many successes to its name either. Why not a division of labor? Some people run as socialists within the Democratic Party, some organize a party outside it, and others shun electoral politics for other forms of radical organizing. Division of labor, war on many fronts, not an either-or thing. But why not savor some victories now and then? Okay, on to Carol Graham. I don't like the term white working class. It gives one demographic subgroup of a large and complex thing some sort of independent life. It divides rather than unites. But there's little doubt that white people with high school educations or less who live in the heartland, rural, small town, suburban, are really suffering from ill health and declining prospects. Here to take the measure of that is Carol Graham, an economist who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Graham came out of development economics and was one of the pioneers to study the relationship between economics and human happiness. You can find some of her recent work on the topic on the Brookings website at brookings.edu. Carol Graham. Before I press the record button, uh, you were telling me a story about how you got into this work, and uh, I think that uh, the audience might be interested in that as well. We were talking about this article having sparked some interest, and you said, well, it kind of pushed a button, didn't it? And I said, what's interesting about all of this work using well-being metrics and happiness and other dimensions of well-being and economics is that that's precisely what it does and that we're able to measure very robustly things that are intuitive and but that hit very close to home to people's emotions to what they want to achieve in life people are more interested in it than you know the gdp numbers or something but i started off as a development economist i was born in peru and i was working on poverty and inequality around the world for years kind of doing much more typical stuff and then I found these results where very poor people who hadn't had much income change at all reported to be very happy and then people who'd had a, made big gains reported to be frustrated and unhappy and trying to understand that I mean I was I guess I was innately interested in their perceptions that's why I got into it but trying to understand that ended up being one of the early people involved in this burgeoning field of using economic metrics to go beyond income data and measure all the different determinants of well-being. And since that, what what I found, in addition to us being able to really measure this stuff robustly, because we've learned a lot, and it's, it's not pie-in-the-sky stuff, it's really large and consistent trends and patterns across populations and countries and people over time, is that the the findings are often very intuitive. They confirm things we kind of think makes sense, like, well, yeah, you would think optimistic people would do better, wouldn't you? But when you can actually confirm that they live longer and that their optimism leads to a channel of investing more in themselves, that one, it's, it's interesting information, but it also resonates because it, it puts numbers and robust metrics on people's intuitions. And not always, because sometimes we find things that are very counterintuitive, right? But again, that, so that's, it just sparks interest in a way or hits a nerve, as you said, more than other, than other approaches do. Two things. One, just the, the cliche, money can't buy happiness. Uh, there's some truth to that. So money does matter. Um, it can't, money can't buy happiness. What we find, uh, and this is really consistent over 
people everywhere around the world, poor countries, rich countries, is that being destitute is terrible for happiness or any any dimension of well-being. So that could be life satisfaction, happiness over your life course. It could be stress, anger, or worry, or contentment in the day. If you're destitute, the quality of your daily life is awful. So it's hard to get beyond that. Once you have enough money, and that's a very relative term, because what's enough? Enough in Bangladesh is very different from enough in the United States, and even enough in France and enough in the United States may be different depending on social norms of how much you think you need and should have and the size of your neighbor's house and everything else. But once you sort of hit a kind of median income for your context, your country, your neighborhood, then more and more money doesn't buy you better moods. It doesn't make you smile more in a day. It doesn't make you enjoy your friends more. But we do find that people with more money score higher on the life evaluation questions, how you evaluate your life as a whole. And again, more money doesn't mean more and more money, but it does mean enough money to choose the kind of life you want to lead. So if you're asking people how satisfied they are with their lives as a whole, you know, you're going to be a lot more satisfied with your life as a whole versus just, you know, how happy were you yesterday. But with your life as a whole, if you've had a choice in choosing the kind of life you want to lead, and that leads to a deeper question that links to all of this optimism, death of despair stuff, which is one of the things about having that life choice, about being able to be an artist or work in the radio industry or be a journalist like my son is or be an academic like I am or, you know, whatever it is, is that one of the big drivers of higher levels of well-being is having purpose and meaning in life. So if you've chosen a job that you care about, you aren't just ticking the time clock, but that you actually go and you're purposefully engaged and you care about it is hugely important to people's happiness, life evaluations everywhere. Okay, with that uh, excellent preface, let's turn to your paper. Just to put the macro context uh, out there, U.S. life expectancy has been pretty flat in recent years. We used to be ranked quite high in the world. Uh, I believe uh, in the 1960s we're half a year or so longer than our rich country peers, and now we're about, what, three or four years behind them. Uh, so we have this context of uh, a stagnant or declining life expectancy in the U.S., but is that spread evenly across demographics, or are there some demographic groups that are driving this? There's a very clear demographic group, and there's a, a strong link to what I said about kind of purpose and identity. So it's it's very much not only, but let's say on average, a story of less than college-educated whites in suburban and rural areas. It's really the decline of the white working class. These deaths have, and the age band is about 35 to 64. We used to say middle-aged for the band, but we realize it's bigger than that as the deaths of despair have increased. The increase, the percentage increase for men and women is roughly the same, but men started at a much higher level of suicides, opioids, whatever. So the actual numbers are greater for men, but the trend increase over, say, the past five years has been roughly the same for men and women. So the same percentage increase, but starting from a different level. So the the puzzle here is, um, or at least the puzzle when I first found these findings was why are poor blacks and poor Hispanics, but particular poor, poor blacks, so much more optimistic than poor whites? They're objectively more deprived. They've had discrimination. They've had a lot of things. Immigrants have a rough time. But what we find is that two related things. African Americans and immigrants, have const- they've had to adapt and deal and be resilient for many, many years. They didn't, just, they didn't always believe the system worked because the system didn't always work for them. They have coping mechanisms, informal safety nets. They have empathy for people who fall behind because somebody in their family has probably f- fallen behind. The story for the white, blue-collar working class is very different. They had privileged access to the American dream. They had the manufacturing jobs and the stable families. And those were their identity and their mainstay, you know, the kind of Aussie Harriet household, the stable job, the male breadwinner. And over time, with the decline of manufacturing jobs, which you could get before with just a high school education, right, that, that note, just a high school education doesn't get you far anymore. 
But before you've got a high school education, stable family, stable job, you lived the American dream. It's very much gone, and the stable families have gone as quickly as the jobs have gone. So marriage rates used to be, uh, you used to look at black-white differentials for marriage rates. Now you just look at poor-rich difference in marriage rates. So the the stability's gone, and there weren't these informal coping mechanisms. And in addition, the other, it, it, I think it's a question of identity as well. This kind of back to purposefulness, having having an identity and something you believe in when you wake up in the morning. The American dream, the sort of if you work hard, you get ahead. It's all about your individual effort. Has a downside, which is that if you don't make it, you blame yourself, right? For years, it was that people who were on welfare were the losers. They were the minorities or, you know, African-Americans. And you, as, you know, a, a stable job worker in the heartland, didn't even consider being needing assistance. So now there's, there's in addition to relative status losses, job losses, community decimation, population density going down in these places, there's a whole loss of a, a certain way of life, of an identity, of being the American dream that's gone, and there aren't the there aren't coping mechanisms to rely on. What precisely is the geography of these uh, deaths of despair? Where where are they concentrated? There's something called the suicide belt, and it extends sort of from the upper northwest and then down. Uh, then kind of across Ohio, Pennsylvania, to Appalachia, they're different. So gun deaths are more prevalent in the Northwest. Opioids and sort of accidental suicide or overdose is much more prevalent in the sort of, in that, that, that central heartland belt. West Virginia is the capital of it, but also up into some northeastern places, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, which brings me back to a, a kind of an additional point of that geography. At the same time that all this was happening and manufacturing was declining, and as our paper notes, we started to see optimism drop among the um, less than college educated and optimism increase for women and blacks, there was a perfect storm of opioids, both because of the wide availability of them um, due to pharmaceutical companies, because of change in medical practice, prioritizing pain, which encouraged overprescription of opioids. And then after that, a targeting of these same rural areas, or heartland, rural and heartland areas, by the drug traffickers. So in the 80s, during the crack epidemic, the drug traffickers targeted urban cities and African-American males. With this second round, um, particularly as there started to be challenges about overprescription of opioids everything else, that's where the drug traffickers went in with fentanyl and these other derivatives. So you get places that are declining in hope, population density, jobs, identity, people increasingly on disability, and sometimes to make up for not having health insurance, and in comes this influx of a supply of, of, of drugs, both legal and illegal, that just factor into the problem. When did this start happening? You know, I, I don't know enough about illegal drug trafficking. I'm speaking with the economist Carol Graham of the Brookings Institution. I was speaking more of the uh, the, diver the divergence in, in mortality rates and life expectancy. Oh, okay. Okay, so as our paper noted, the, the drop in optimism started gradually around the time of the decline in manufacturing, or at least the challenges to manufacturing jobs in the late 70s, which accelerated over time, like with the WTO and some more Chinese competition and other things a bit further down the road. But so it gradually started in the 70s. The influx of prescription pain uh, medicine started in the 90s. And the drug trafficking, I can't put an exact number on it, but these guys obviously are pretty organized and they may be evil, but they're not stupid, came around the time that one, there was a huge uh, amount of addiction to opioids, but also that prescription practices started to tighten a bit, right? And the problem with the, the illegal derivatives, fentanyl being the worst of those, is that there there's much more variance, um, and they're also much more likely to be high-dose and lethal. 
So the deaths of despair probably started in the late 90s. You really see a big uptick from sort of 2010 on, which also probably corresponds with more illegal drugs. High rates of addiction, but the the illegal factor adds to a higher mortality rate. And this is happening as the uh, the gap in life expectancy between whites and non-whites is, is, is narrowing. Exactly. And part of that narrowing is a good story. So part of that narrowing is just despite a lot of challenges, blacks gradually catching up, both in terms of education gaps but mortality gaps, maybe due to just you know, a higher proportion of blacks getting into higher income levels and higher income jobs and higher education, education gaps narrowing, um, maybe because of a recognition of some discrimination in medical practice, maybe because there's a bit of evidence suggesting that blacks and Hispanics are much less likely to be prescribed opioids, which is due to discrimination, but may have been a mixed blessing. But for all these reasons, many of them positive except that last part. Yes, we see the, the, the life expectancy gap narrowing due to progress, but we also see it narrowing due to the fact that there's this huge increase in premature mortality among the corresponding white population, less than, edu- less than college-educated white population. And what about uh, the more educated white population? Anything like that happening there? No. I- I'm sure there are addiction they're probably plain old suicide. Probably, I, I don't think there's been a big uptick in it. it. It still exists. And on average, blacks and Hispanics are much less likely to report depression or commit suicide than whites. So that's kind of a separate but related trend. So, yeah, there are already differences across minorities and whites. But the, the, the kind of the big crisis of death and despair is very much driven by this same group that's lost their identity, that's lost their status, they've lost their purpose, and they don't have great job prospects because, you know, without a college education in a hollowed-out manufacturing town, what are you going to do? You're going to go move to San Francisco when you can't afford to sell your house and you can't, you're going to work in Silicon Valley in a high-tech job? You know, it's it's not as though the, the solutions for you, individual X, in a hollowed-out manufacturing town are all that easy, particularly for older people, right? Middle-aged people, younger people can retool more easily. So it's a bit of a conundrum, to say the least. There are also um, some success stories. There are communities in the Midwest that are making it. There are communities that, due to public and private joint efforts, investing in infrastructure, invest, you know, that happen to if they happen to have a university, that's great in the the, the cities that are making it. There's some progress in what we call mid-tech, so tech industries investing in the side of the production that doesn't require a college education. It could be coding. It could be all the other. It could be, you know, outsourcing service calls or whatever. So that there are some places that make it, but that that's not happening at a rate fast enough to turn around the kind of death of despair crisis and the double whammy on the latter is that even the success stories I'm talking about hinge on a a sufficient population density, sufficient infrastructure, something like a college or a community college or something, you know, um, and all those things, in addition to making economic recovery more viable, make them much more hopeful places to live. You mentioned population density. You didn't find this uh, phenomenon in the coastal cities. It's mostly in rural heartland areas. What's the role of social isolation? It's huge. And if you think about cities, they tend to be, they're crowded, hopping places. There's diversity. There's better health behaviors just by design. I mean, it's tough to live in a city and not walk. You've got to walk. You've got to take the metro, take the bus. There are people exercising around you, there's social diversity, which is a positive thing. It shows up in our findings that more diverse places are happier and more optimistic, in part because of the composition of the population, but I think in part because there's an an additional effect. If you think about these isolated places, many of which have much more limited access even to broadband internet, in addition to not having vibrant urban centers because they're 
you know, remote suburban or rural areas, there's distance and climate. You know, it's not like you walk to the city center and hang out with people. It's cold or it's hot, and there's a big distance, so you see much more isolation. And you throw in there a big percentage of prime age males out of the labor force. Um, 15% of, despite, you know, we have 4% unemployment rates and everybody's going on about how great that is. People who drop out of the labor force fall out of the denominator. So what we have is 15 to 20% of prime age males out of the labor force at the same time that the economy in the coast and in high skilled sectors is booming. And a large percent of them are socially isolated in these remote places. They spend a large proportion of their time playing video games, and many, many, many of them are on opioids. So even if they wanted to be employed, they would have a really difficult time passing a drug test. And you hear stories. This this last statement is anecdotal, unlike the other ones I made. But you hear stories of trucking companies and other companies, Cargill or whatever, having job vacancies in you know in these areas, but they they can't find workers to pass the drug test. Well, finally, there's been this debate uh, in the political sphere about whether uh, a large portion of Trump's vote came uh, for uh, reasons of economic anxiety versus reasons of identity, the kinds of identity issues you were talking about. It sounds like it's really hard to separate those two from your work. It's incredibly hard to. There's a wonderful um, sociologist at Hopkins, Andrew Cherlin, who's written a lot about this, including a, a really nice piece in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about how you can't separate culture and identity from economic anxiety. And the simplest and shortest way I can put this is for African Americans and Hispanics, when asked to compare themselves to their parents, they tend to say they live better. It hasn't been an easy gain, but they've made gains and they they, they don't have a sense of lost identity. For blue collar whites, the majority will say they live worse than their parents did. And worst is not about or worse is not about the number of TVs or the you know the the size of the car. It's about having a respectable, stable job and a stable life. And they have need a lot. Most have neither. Jobs are few and far between. They're no longer of good quality. They're often very unstable jobs. And you know, family structures have fallen apart. And the culture of it is this identity of being in this American middle class that's hollowed out. You know, and the top of the middle class and the bottom of the middle class are now incredibly different. That was Carol Graham, an economist and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. I should say that talking about the woes of poor white people can be politically dangerous. It can slide easily into a Trumpite politics of minimizing the problems of blacks, Latinos, and immigrants. Neither Graham nor I want to do that. I know that because we talked about it off mic. But to ignore their plight will be to ignore a lot of politically consequential suffering. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of poem by U.S. girls, the stage name of Megan Remy. No one needs to make a profit. No one needs to get paid. If we all agree, we don't have to live that way. 
Thanks to listener Bob for pointing her work out to me. And now Kristen Godsey, an anthropologist who is a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the co-author, along with the philosopher Scott Sion, of Anti-Anti-Communism on the Aeon website. She's been on the show a couple of times before, once discussing how women had better sex under socialism, and the second time discussing her book Red Hangover. Kristen Godsey. There seems to be an upsurge uh, of anti-communist ideology. There's the, the victims of communism. People are putting up uh, memorials all over the place. What's this all about? Why is this happening? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Why is it happening 30 years, almost 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall? It's one of the most interesting things that's animated my research for the last couple of years, because I started seeing this first in Eastern Europe after the 2008 Prague Declaration of Conscience. And it is interesting that the upsurge in anti-communism and sort of trying to remind the general public of the horrors of 20th century communism follows the 2008 Great Recession. So you can almost correlate the crisis in capitalism that followed 2008 and, and the big financial crisis and the sudden upsurge in anti-communist rhetoric. So that um, obviously places like the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, but also East European governments uh, and obviously the White House declared um, last year, November 9th, the Victims of Communism Day for the first time. All of this, in some ways, is a response to the increasing crisis of capitalism and the surge of interest in leftist ideologies among millennials in the United States, uh, particularly after the electoral successes of people like Bernie Sanders in the United States or Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. It's funny this is happening just as you know, we've got Nazis all over the Ukrainian government and yeah. <laughs> uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary is is like pretty much ending democracy in that country. Uh, so it, and Kaczynski in Poland, yeah. It doesn't seem like the communist threat is really live at this point. No, in some ways it's a boogeyman. And I think that's one of the things that we were trying to point out in the article, that the far right has used pretty consistently for the last decade or so the fear of immigration and the fear of Islam. But again, I think that a lot of people in the United States and probably across Western Europe, not everybody, even people who are not necessarily on the left, believe that immigration is such a huge threat. It's a threat. They perceive it as a threat, but probably not as big of a threat as, as the right would like them to believe it is. And also Islam, obviously there's terrorism, but I don't think anybody seriously thinks that the United States is going to become a theocratic republic under Sharia law anytime soon. So in order to scare people, the best uh, new and perhaps old boogeyman is communism, is the fear of these sort of wild-eyed Marxists coming to take away your liberties uh, and your property. And I think that that's, um, it's almost like a third red scare that we're beginning to see in lots of uh, advanced uh, capitalist countries that are facing challenges from electorates, particularly young people who are unhappy with the way the economy has been going for the last decade or so. Yeah, there must be a general, generational issue here, too, because for someone my age, uh, it was certainly uh, no shortage of uh, propaganda about communism from, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> from practically the date of birth. Uh, for someone your age, you caught the tail end of that. But, you know, people who are young today in their 20s um, have no experience of it. This whole communist thing means nothing to them. And it's kind of hard to imagine how they can actually make this propaganda stick. It just has no um, emotional resonance or even any adhesive that could uh, receive it. Right. And, and I think that's why they're desperate to try to put up billboards, for instance, in Times Square or regurgitate all of these kind of trite statements about, you know, like basically reducing everything about socialist ex experiments in the 20th century to the horrors and per of the purges and the famines and the, the atrocities that were committed under Stalin. So any sort of nuance about what 20th century communism was actually about or even recognizing that like Stalin wasn't the leader of the Soviet Union for all 70 years, it's actually really hard to have a conversation with people on the right and on the left young people because they don't really understand the history. And unfortunately, I think partially because of the Internet and the world of memes and the world of tweets, um, it's hard to have a really nuanced discussion about this history and about how arguments are being made about this history and why they're happening now. And that was one of the reasons why we decided to really dig in and write this piece for Aeon, where we could 
have 3,500 words to really go in and say, okay, what does it mean to resurrect the specter of communism in 2017? Why is it suddenly so frightening for people? And why is it being sort of bandied about as something to mobilize the right? Because I think that's how it's being used, right? If you go on Twitter and you type in, I think, the term anti-communist in the search function, a lot of people actually call themselves anti-communists, like on as like part of their little identity blurb. It's like somebody saying like, I'm anti-feudal. I am anti, I'm an anti-feudalist. I mean, I am anti-feudal, but it seems oddly strange to declare that as part of my identity in the year 2018. So I feel like- Marx did say that it's way too easy to be liberal at the expense of the Middle Ages. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so I just think that, you know, it's interesting that young people, you know, associated with the, perhaps the alt-right or, you know, the internet um, cultures on the right- claim this this idea of anti-communism for themselves, even though, as you point out, like communism isn't really a thing anymore. It is a, a bit puzzling. But I do think that if you look at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation and some of the public opinion surveys that have been done of millennials, what you see is that a lot of millennials are more critical of capitalism than they are of socialism and communism, certainly of socialism. And so I think there's a lot of fear that as the millennials grow by 2020, I believe they'll be the largest demographic in the presidential election if they vote, they have an incredible amount of electoral power. And the fact that they tend to lean left, either Democrat or independent, um, Democratic leaning independent, means that conservatives have some work to do in order to convince them that any sort of experiments with redistribution are somehow going to inevitably lead to the gulag uh, in order to maintain the status quo. Um, this is a bit off track, but you know, a lot of the, uh, the emotional energy underlying some of the anti-Russian stuff you hear circulating um, seems like it's uh, anti-communism without the communists. Yeah. And, you know, that's one thing I have to say that I'm actually really surprised at how wrong people get what's going on in Russia. In particular, I can give you a very specific example, which is this Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation did a public opinion poll through YouGov in November of 2017, and they asked people about their opinions of of communist leaders. And you know, among those leaders were people like Stalin and Mao, obviously Lenin. But they included Putin, which just seems like completely confused. Now, these are professional pollsters. You would think that they would know that Putin himself is not at all a communist. Yeah, there there is this sort of fear of the second cold the you know the 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 second cold war this renewed cold war, it sort of oddly blurs. Putin is obviously a nationalist, but I don't think he's a communist. <laughs> no, he's surrounded by billionaires. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so it's a but it's very very strange how that slippage happens. You know, I always fear when I talk about these things of 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 sounding like some kind of a smug liberal because obviously that's a that can be very alienating to people. But I do think that some of this is just based in lack of information and a little bit of ignorance. Like if you just spent a few minutes on Wikipedia, you'd be able to figure out a little bit more about what communism actually means and how Putin doesn't really fit into that ideology right now. So um, he did describe the fall of the Soviet Union as one of the, the greatest tragedies of the 20th century, though, didn't he? Absolutely. And a lot of, I think, Russians uh, will agree with him. But I think that's more about lost imperial power, lost status in the world versus any kind of nostalgia for the kind of planned economy that the Soviet Union had and a sort of redistributive politics of the Soviet Union. Th those are two different things. You can be nostalgic for a a previous version of your country that was much greater. I mean, I believe that that's sort of inherent in the whole idea of make America great again, right? I mean, <laughs> this is Putin is a sort of make Russia great again person, but it's not necessarily a return to the Soviet Union. He's just saying that the Soviet, the instantiation of Russia as a Soviet Union was a time of great power and influence in the world and people mourn the loss of that power and influence. But I think that's a very different thing from the kind of redistributive politics that a lot of people on the left today are talking about. Underlying a lot of this anti revived anti-communist propagandizing is a really grotesque kind of uh, accounting that uh, as was inspired by the Black Book of Communism, right? Yeah, talk about those numbers games that they play. It's so frustrating to talk about the, the numbers because 
I think it was Noam Chomsky who had an article around the time that the Black Book came out called Counting the Bodies, which is what it actually means to kind of come up with some kind of death count for different sorts of ideologies. And very recently, there's uh, there was an infographic created by Information is Beautiful, and they tried to blame ideology for a certain number of deaths in the 20th century. And of course, what's really interesting about that infographic is that they don't include capitalism. Apparently, they don't see capitalism as an ideology. They, they do include democracy, which is interesting, but they don't include capitalism. And so it allows them to do some funny things with the numbers. And the other thing about the Black Book, I think, is that, you know, as, I, as we talked about in the article, the minute that book came out, two of the senior historians involved in writing of that book basically discredited it in the pages of Le Monde by saying that the editor, Stephen Courtois, was so obsessed with reaching the number of 100 million that it led to very sloppy scholarship. But even if you go back and you read Courtois' own introduction, he makes it very clear that his numbers are based on informal estimates and their rough approximations. But I don't think it's necessarily worth quibbling about the numbers. I mean, there there were a lot of people who died under communist regimes. That is, there's no doubt about that. The point that we were trying to make in the article was that a lot of people have also died under capitalist regimes and directly as a consequence of capitalism. But we don't have necessarily uh, a count. You know, nobody's putting up billboards, paying to put up billboards in Times Square about the victims of capitalism. And it's not mere whataboutism. There is actually, that's the point of this article, is to show that there's an intermediate premise that makes the arguments against communism equally valid against capitalism. I'm speaking with the anthropologist Kristen Godsey. You mentioned whataboutism. This seems like a a very um, widely used argument these days. What about whataboutism? Yeah, it is a widely used argument. And I find it a very strange way of deflecting an argument, which is that if I say something like communism did a lot of bad things and somebody says, well, capitalism did a lot of bad things, that's just whataboutism is the answer, right? That you're not actually addressing the fact that one ideology had has blood on its hands, so to speak, by pointing out that this other ideology also has blood on its hands. That's not an argument. And and in some cases, that's actually true. It's not an argument. You're just basically pointing out another fact that doesn't necessarily exonerate the truth of the, uh, you know, the, of the first fact. But I think that the key thing that we tried to do in this article was to say that, well, you're asserting a historical premise about the number of people killed by a certain ideology and that those people were killed as a direct result of that ideology, that intermediate premise that the people were killed because of that ideology leads to the conclusion that you should reject, reject that ideology. That argument is similarly valid for communism as it is for capitalism. And so it's not mere whataboutism. It's not because the, the intermediate premise needed to make the communist argument valid actually collapses. And so you have to actually come up with a a different argument in order to make those numbers relevant. Because, you know, at the end of the day, one of the things that the Black Book does is to try to say that communism killed a lot more people than Nazism, for instance. Now, there's a lot of fudging of the numbers there because the numbers attributed to Nazism don't necessarily include the war deaths of World War II, which is pretty problematic. But even so, what are you actually saying when you say that, well, because X number of people more were killed under this ideology than under this other ideology, therefore that, for, that's, that first ideology is just completely off of, out of political bounds. But this second ideology, which also killed a bunch of people, is okay because it didn't kill as many. Now, when you make that argument, which I believe is what the argument that a lot of the, the anti-communists are trying to make right now, they open so- themselves up to the problem that if somebody could sit down somehow and do an unbiased accounting of how many people died as a direct result of capitalist ideology, then using their very same argument, if that number is far greater than the 100 million that they attribute to communist ideology, then they have to reject capitalism in favor of communism. It, you know, they've, they've backed themselves into a really weird corner by playing this numbers game 
which is why I believe Chomsky in his article uh, about counting the bodies really said that this is um, quite problematic. And of course, Chomsky also talks about things like the Bengal famine. You know, how do we attribute certain historical events uh, or natural things like famines that um, are sometimes caused by bureaucratic bungling, but also sometimes caused by Mother Nature to political ideologies that happen to be ruling at the time? And if you're going to, you know, attribute famine deaths to a certain political ideology, then um, can you also attribute uh, people who die because of lack of health care uh, or people who die because of gun violence to a particular political ideology that believes in the free market and so on and so forth? So the point of the article was to try to have and, and the question, you know, the, the problem here was the, the operative word of this sentence is to try to have an intelligent conversation around what it means to make certain types of historical arguments using evidence from the 20th century. There seems to be a habit among uh, these sort of anti professional anti-communists, old and new, of trying to draw a direct line from Marx to the gulag. Yeah. But they're, they're not interested in drawing a line from, you know, say, Adam Smith to Indian genocide. No, absolutely. And, and we mentioned that. Or slavery, right? Or internment camps, or any number of atrocities that could be laid at the feet of capitalist or free market ideologies. No, I mean, you know, if you go back to David Ricardo and Adam Smith and you think about the principle of, of self-interest, self-interest could be blamed for a lot of pretty horrible things. Free markets, the idea of putting profits uh, in, above people. The other thing that we say in the article, which is also very important, is that unlike capitalism and, and, and both capitalism and communism, where the ideology doesn't necessarily draw a straight line to these historical results, um, Nazi ideology clearly did, right? That's, that's very clear that you had a racist ideology that believed that a certain type of people were better than other types of people. And so the Holocaust was a direct result of Nazi ideology. Uh, that's not necessarily true in either, the, I would argue, in either case of communism or capitalism. You can't really draw a direct line from the ideas of Adam Smith or the ideas of, of Karl Marx to what ended up happening in the way those ideologies were implemented in the 20th century. Now, these are arguments. Historians can go back and forth about this. I'm not denying for a second that many, 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 many people, many millions of people were persecuted and killed or died under these regimes in the 20th century. At issue here is why in 2017, 2018, we suddenly need to be reminded of all these deaths in a way that we're not being reminded necessarily about other types of deaths that occurred in the 20th century. All these people seem to forget also that uh, Stalin died, what, about 40 years before the Soviet Union did? Right. <laughs> oh, no, exactly. And that, and that there were places like Yugoslavia, right, um, that, that had very different sorts of state socialist regimes from the Soviet Union. We try to collapse everything down into the Soviet Union. And then there's just a lot of historical misunderstanding about like exactly how long ago this actually happened. So one of the most interesting things was back last year uh, when I wrote this op-ed for the New York Times, Greg Gutfield of Fox News picked it up and basically had this little segment where... The women had better sex under communism. Right, 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 under socialism. He basically did a little intro saying that the, the reason that the New York Times could publish an article like that was because everybody who lived under socialism was already dead. That's the great thing about socialism. Everybody dies before you get around to asking. So this was on like television. This is like somebody who is basically asserting that everyone who lived in the Soviet Union in the 20th century or any socialist regime in the 20th century is dead. Now, that's just completely, historically, logically ridiculous because it was only 30 years ago. And there are, I mean, I have tons of colleagues who are people who grew up in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. I have several friends who did. Yeah. So it's just, it's crazy to think that people are not really clear about when this was and what it meant you know, to come back to, to a question that you asked me before, I think that's one of the reasons why I really felt it was important for Professor Sian and I to write this article, because 
there's a place for having a reasoned, nuanced discussion about the past and how the past gets used and abused for contemporary political issues and, and problems and projects. Unfortunately, the polarization in our country is such that it's getting harder and harder to have these kinds of discussions. People on the right are being pushed further on the right, and people on the left, I will say, are being pushed further and further to the left. So that, you know, sometimes I, you know, talk to millennials or my students at Penn, and they're joking about like folk communism now. And I have to say, what do you actually mean? Do you even know what you're talking about when you say something like full communism now? And I don't think they do. <laughs> and I sometimes worry. It's a cool meme, though. It is a cool meme, right? But, you know, do they do they mean like the shortages and the travel restrictions <laughs> as well? Pulling that apart would be a, a really useful conversation to have. But I guess the world of memes makes it, you know, harder and harder to have those have those conversations. But, you know, it's funny, like somebody like Sanders, uh, who I think is responsible for a lot of this renewed interest in both socialism and uh, anti-communism. He's certainly not calling for the socialization of the means of production. Of course not. He's just basically talking about redistribution outside of his proposal, I think, for a postal bank, which is sort of a socialization of at least, a, you know, a bank. It would be a federal bank, which many other advanced capitalist countries have. Japan has one and the Germans have them. Outside of that and, you know, uh, public universities, which we do already have, he's not actually calling for people to seize the means of production. He's not talking about public ownership in the same way that, that actual communists are. So I do think, but it's, again, people don't necessarily understand what these different things mean. And part of the reason that... Um, we should be having these conversations is is to actually discuss what is it that we're talking about. And, you know, I also think that it's important to say that we should be able to learn from the 20th century, both the good stuff and the bad stuff, so that we can use the good stuff and definitely reject the bad stuff. But we can't, if it's all just one black box of evil Stalinism and purges and famines, then it's really, really difficult to have a conversation of what might have worked and what didn't work. That's part of the discussion that we should, ha we should be having, and I don't think that we have. What kind of reaction do you get when you write a piece like this or the one in the Times from last summer? Uh, do, do people just retreat to uh, reflexive positions, or do you actually ever get any thoughtful engagement? So mostly I get a lot of helicopter memes, <laughs> which I find very ironic. I don't know if you're familiar with the free helicopter ride meme. Oh, no, 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 I'm not. So the alt-right, this is their preferred way of dealing with people who they perceive to be Marxists or leftists or communists or, you know, Stalinists or whatever, is to post helicopters in response to your articles so what they refer to are the extra juridical killings in the dirty war where Pinochet uh, put leftists uh, in opposition to his dictatorial regime um, in helicopters and flew them out. Uh, or I guess this was also in Argentina and dumped them into the Atlantic Ocean or to the into the Rio de la Plata. And so, yes, you get a lot of free, free helicopter, which, of course, the irony of that is that. These are people who are anti-communist because they perceive that communism unfairly killed political dissidents, people like in Stalin's purges. And what is their solution? Their solution is to, you know, without due process, kill people that disagree with them by flying them out in helicopters and dropping them into the ocean. So <laughs> you get some of that. Uh, I, I can tell you all sorts of, you know, horrible stories of various threats that come my way, which is one of the reasons why I am not on social media at all. But I do occasionally get really thoughtful engagement. People are interested and people are learning things. They're inspired to go and actually read te primary texts. And I think that on some level, it's not easy to, to have these discussions. And I wish in some, you know, sometimes I wish that it was a more broad discussion in our political climate in the United States. But, you know, I think it's still worth occasionally trying to do it right and, and opening up a place for debate, because I think that a lot of people are interested. I mean, the, this article in Aeon, I think, got quite a lot of hits. It was one of the most popular articles on their website the month that it came out. So, 
it reached a lot of people, not only in the United States and the UK, but all over the world. I think it's been translated into Turkish. I know it was translated into Russian. So I think I think it was translated into Spanish as well. So I think it's it, it at least allows people to have a conversation that they may not have been having before. I was Kristen Godsey, an anthropologist who is a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. You can find her article on anti-anti-communism at aeon, A-E-O-N dot C-O. Her book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence, will be published in November, and you can be sure she'll be on this show to discuss it. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Glenn Branca died early this week, so let's go out with some of Theoretical Girls by his old band, Theoretical Girls, from U.S. Girls back to Theoretical Girls. Till next week, bye. One, two, three, four.